I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Andy Schoen is a trailblazing media and entertainment executive with a career that spans radio, music, television, and digital media. At 16, he was the youngest radio announcer in the U.S. By age 18, he was working at Seattle's legendary rock station, KISW, where he was known as the Boy Wonder. As program director of America's number one music station, KROQ, he developed The Kevin and Bean Show, the most successful morning show in L.A. radio history. MTV hijacked his radio career, and he spent most of the 90s as head of programming at MTV, later adding VH1, and leading the team that created and launched MTV2. He brought the first celebrity reality show to TV, The Rodman World Tour, starring Dennis Rodman, and launched and founded two more cable networks, including Revolt TV, with his friend Sean Diddy Combs. And when the internet was born, he helped bring music to it as founder and CEO of the first commercial music subscription service called Press Play, a predecessor to both Spotify and iTunes. Now he is co-founded and is building a global streaming media and information company called Speaker, launching in 2019. So let's rewind to the beginning for an impressive media journey as we say it forward with Andy Schoen. You're a California boy. You know, my parents migrated out west from uh, Michigan when I was about five to the West Coast. So I spent my time growing up first in a little lumberjack town in the Pacific Northwest called Port Angeles, Washington, the gateway to the Olympic Peninsula. And then when I was in middle school, uh, we moved down to Reno where my dad took a job at the university. So uh, I'm one of those people that everyone always says, I never met anybody from Reno. And <laughs> now I always say... And now you can now say, you I met know. a guy from Reno once. Was your dad an academic coming from Michigan to uh, the Cascades? My dad bought a print shop out of the back of a trade magazine, I think, for printing. And he flew out there. And then we were bold enough to leave the rest of my family and my mom and dad and my sister, who was probably two at the time. I was five. Um, my mom and dad, we moved out to this little town um, up by Canada. And he ran the print shop on Main Street until he got a job at the University of Nevada running all their operations and printing. So he was an executive there. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, where are they now? Are your folks still alive? My mom and sister are still up in northern Nevada, and my dad passed away years ago of uh, lung cancer. Mm. He basically was an overachiever on everything you could possibly do wrong for your lungs. Be uh, beyond smoking, <laughs> he would also like to smoke in a uh, sealed room with a bunch of now banned chemicals for printing. <laughs> yes. You know, so all that oh. stuff they used to strip plates with and develop things with this so anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had a good sense of humor till the end, and I said, Dad, you really, you really nailed it on this one. You really you really did everything you could he really loved cancer. what he did though i can yeah. just feel it from how you talk about it oh yeah yeah he did and he liked to compare the fact that we were both in the communication arts because uh -huh. printing is one of the you know the early forms of communication yeah. did he get to see your success he did. He got to visit me at uh, MTV in the corner office. He got to uh, visit me at Warner Brothers and various different businesses of mine. So yeah, he was he was around until 2004. So he got to see, oh. uh, got to meet my wife and all that. So, Not my kids, unfortunately. So this is kind of a funny question, but did you have a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder in your house? Did you play around with recording your voice when you were a kid? Was that part of the the journey for you? The journey for me really started in the small town where I was. It's you're really sealed off. I mean, it was a it was a very small town about 90 minutes from Seattle, further up towards the point of Washington State across the water from Victoria, Canada. Every kid's dad was a lumberjack, pretty much. In, in, when you ask kids at school, what does your dad do? He drives truck. <laughs> my dad drives truck. They don't drive a truck. They drive truck. And my dad had the print shop. So I kind of, I, I, I kind of in this small town, I think I think having anxiety as about a 12 or 13 year old one night, my parents gave me a hand me down old crusty AM clock radio and they plugged it in by my bed, I think, to get me to go to sleep or to be distracted. And I just started tuning through it. And I I found myself listening through the radio instead of to the radio, not knowing it at the time. But I was really breaking it down and analyzing it. And I, I so I, you could at night, AM radio travels in kind of waves where FM 
is in a straight line. And so the signal from AM at night, when the atmospheric conditions are right, you can do what's called DXing, which is to skip around and hear stations from far away places. And so in Port Angeles, Washington, you could hear CKLG in Vancouver. CKLG. You could hear KJR in Seattle. KJR, serving the Pacific Northwest from Seattle. You hear KFRC in San Francisco. KFRC, San Francisco. KSL in Salt Lake City. This is KSL News Radio. All the way down to KFI in LA. Los Angeles. And sometimes down in Baja, you can hear Wolfman Jack on Extra down there. Wolfman Jack, play it, yo! I was tuning in these stations and I found myself wondering what, where's that DJ? Is he in a skyscraper or in some other building? What does the studio look like? Why does this station play three commercials and this one plays six? And how come this guy talks on the records and this other station doesn't? Some rock stations treat the music like it's, like it's classical music and the top 40 stations seem to just throw it away, you yeah, know? Yeah, and I, yeah. I was thinking about all this stuff. And so, wow. so that was the beginning of it. And I found myself just really, really fascinated. And it was a window to the world for a young boy in a small town. Mm -hmm. That became my obsession. And then it translated to television. So I started breaking down TV too. It was, you know, and we lived by the Canadian border. So we had Canadian TV and we had American TV. So if you were watching the Olympics, I'd be able to see that we had a little bit of curling on NBC. We had all of the curling on CBC, you know? So I was, and I, I would sort of just try to figure out all this stuff. How old were you? 12, 13. Wow. And so then I did get a cassette deck. You know, we would do fake broadcasts, right. me and friends. Yeah. We would do the sign off because stations used to sign off. They didn't used to be on all night, you know, yeah. so we would conclude our broadcasting day. We've come to the end of our telecasting day with a sincere hope that you have enjoyed our entertainment. This is Dick Peterson speaking for the entire staff and management of King TV, wishing you a very pleasant Good night. And now the national anthem. Dun, you know, dun, we would do, dun, we would do dun, that. I totally remember. Then, then yeah. if you're watching TV, then the then that yes. test pattern with yeah. the with uh -huh. the, with the uh, yeah, yeah. Native American would yes. come on. Yes. Yeah. Your interest level in this at at that age was a lot. I mean, you were captivated with something that was so new. Yeah, it really was something different than anything else in my town. And I would go down and peer in the window of the local, there was a local AM station in town called KONP. And I would listen to that and I would try to call in the request line and, you know, win a contest and sort of interact with it somewhat. And we'd go to Seattle and I would make my parents drive by the radio stations and I would try to like, you know, see them and, you Can know, I was you into it. Can you describe for our audience what that looked like? I would best describe, you know, radio when I was growing up as being very hands-on. It was today, if you go into a radio station, you've got the disc jockey there, maybe with the same energy or the host, but they're looking at a couple of really large, beautiful flat screens and, you know, the servers and the files are doing all the work and there's a certain amount of automation that happens. There was absolutely no automation at that time. So it was like being a short order cook at a diner is what it was like to be a disc jockey because you were having to pull actual records and cue them up on turntables. And you pulled these things called carts, which were like eight track tapes. And you would put, be putting those away. Those were the commercials and promos and IDs or jingles or whatever. And you'd be constantly putting things away and pulling new things and queuing up records and putting them away and filing them. And then you'd be running a board and you'd be, you'd be bringing the volume level up on your mic and you'd be having to segue records and do all that continuously while you were pulling promos and filling out logs of the transmitter and all of that. So it was a constant, constant thing. And what's different today, energy-wise, is you just see the DJ sitting there, you know, sipping a cup of coffee while the machines are doing all the work until even automatically their mic comes on. Back then, we had to do it all ourselves, and it was very hands-on, so you really felt more like a craftsman, and you really had a feel mm -hmm. for how to—it was very analog. You had mm -hmm. a feel for how to make it. It sounds to me on the timeline. I mean, you were at the baby stages of when huge music started to come out, and audiences started to listen. I remember seeing pictures of kids, you know— like, you know, your big radio would be playing at a place and all the kids were, you know, bopping around right. dancing. That's yeah. sounds like that's sort of the timeline that intersects with when you were starting this. Yeah. Radio at the we're now talking about the late 70s. And I got into I actually went in and worked at a radio station in the summer of 1981 is when I got my big break my big little break in the biggest little city in the world of Reno, Nevada. But that's when radio was incredibly powerful. I mean, MTV came along, which is in my history a little later, but, but before that, you know, radio was the, was this hype monster that would take uh, the music, the priorities of the record companies with input from the, the programmers, 
uh, hopefully with not too much influence from payola and other things. And right. they would put the hits on and those would, you know, build the careers of the artists. What an exciting Much harder time. today to do yeah. that. So you always knew that this is what you wanted to do. You were. I really did. And I have, you know, I, I had incredibly supportive parents. Um, so I think in my particular case, I can say, I don't know about everyone, but in my particular case, my, the foundation of my upbringing and my parents really trying to provide opportunities for me and being very supportive of whatever they were you know, a fighter pilot or whatever other things I wanted to be, which those were two things I thought I wanted to do at some point. <laughs> they were supportive. Uh, so with that foundation, when we moved from that little lumberjack town down to uh, Reno, uh, I moved with me that passion for radio. And my mom one day, now I'm probably about 15, came home and said, there's a radio class at the YWCA. It's a weekly class and you get to go and tour radio stations locally, a different station every week and learn how they work. And she, she asked me if I wanted to do it and, I, and she signed me up and she drove me around because uh, there were a bunch of like 35 or 40 year old dudes who were going around to these stations and it was me with my mom driving me around and going on these <laughs> tours. And on one of the tours, we stopped at the number one station in town, which is still today KOZZ in Reno up on a hilltop on the edge of town, which was the FM rock station that was a really good small town rock station consulted by one of the big consulting firms. That, so imagine a KLOS type station or a major market radio station that was, you know, with just a small town feel to it. Yeah. So it, was, it had all the formatics right. So we went to visit that station and I didn't have a particular format of interest at that time, but it was a rock station and it was the number one station and it was really cool. And there was a DJ in there with uh, named the funk, Steve funk. <laughs> and he had the lights out, but he was burning candles and he was playing Pink Floyd records. Oh, and I'm wow. like, this is pretty cool. And I found out in the lobby at that station that they had something called the amateur hour. And on the amateur hour, any citizen broadcaster who sent a postcard in could be chosen to host an hour, seven o'clock Sunday nights. And what's interesting and why this is so pivotal is I figured out that night how to crack the code because I said to my mom that night on the way back in the car, you know, radios has this catch 22 problem that you have to have a tape to get a job and you have to have a job to get a tape. They won't take a fake one I make at home. You have to actually have a, sh a show. So how do you do that? I know how you do it. I go on the amateur hour. We record that show. And then I go in there and I have my tape. And oh, I get that's the job. awesome. And my mom said, that sounds great. Wow. So I sent the you postcard You were so in. smart at 15. Yeah. Jesus. Crazy. I, I mean, and, you know, it's crazy. But so I went home the next day. I send the postcard in. About three weeks later, I get the call that they've chosen me. And I have about three weeks time to prepare my show, which I over prepare for. What does that mean? <laughs> Meaning that I wrote out scripts. I called the station and asked if I could have the studio, uh, the production studio, because I was going to maybe need it to produce some elements for my show. And, you know, at this time, I mean, nobody had ever used it for anything other than an hour of dedications of like Leonard Skinner to their girlfriend yeah. you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, and I came in and I'm like, I'm going to do a show and it's going to be called The Shown Zone. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That's good. You know, the and it's got a ring zone. to it. I'm going to do some branding, you know, so uh, <laughs> And so, and so I had time to plan and I did the show on a Sunday night. <clears throat> this was now in between my, my junior and senior year in the summer of, of so you're 16 81, years old. 16 years old. Welcome to the Jim Garcia, Andy Schoen Zone. I'm Andy. And I'm Jim. You are intensely happy. And you are on the Z. I did the show with a, one of my best friends from school. Uh, named Jim. And we picked uh, a playlist, which I have on Spotify still today. And it, you know, it, all but one of the songs still holds up today, I think. Um, but it was Changes by David Bowie. Bob O'Reilly by The Who was on there. And I think Train in Vain by The Clash. And I'm just remembering some of them now, but wow. but it was a it was a, a good hour, and there was a lot of ridiculous, you know, high voice, nervous sounding <laughs> banter from a couple of high school kids on there. But we got through the show, and I made sure everybody I knew recorded it, so we'd have one good recording of it. Uh, so that was a Sunday night. After that, Monday morning, my mom drove me to the station, and I went into the lobby, and I told the receptionist that I wanted to see the program director, who was named the Sarge Daniel <laughs> Cook. 
Uh, these guys were all like the, the funk, funk the, Sarge. the Sarge and funk. a guy named ZZ at night and all that. And so I said, out, you know, I was on the air last night. I want to talk to the, to the Sarge about a job. She said, okay, I'll let him know. And he came out and I had a briefcase, I think with a, a banana and my cassette in it probably. And I don't know what else, but I did have one of my dad's old briefcases. So I looked very professional Aww. and uh, he came out and I said, I was on the air last night doing the amateur hour and I've got a tape and I'm interested in work here. He said, yeah, I heard it. I said, okay. He said, he said, you're the first person who's ever come up here after the amateur hour. He said, how old are you? And I'm like 16. And he said, you know, we don't have an intern program here, but if you want to hang out and put away records and learn how things work, you're welcome to, to hang out as long as it doesn't get in the way of school. And so I went to the window and waved my mom off and told her to leave and come back for me later. And I stayed there. And from that point on, oh, here we are today. You wow. Know? That That's is how it such started. a beautiful story. They took it, you seriously. They took me seriously. You know, you look back on it now if you're self-reflective, which I try to be. That was the foundation for a, a lifelong, powerful self-confidence, you know, because I thought, well, listen, I, I can just, I can just figure out what I want to do and go get it. And it's amazing how few people uh, really understand that the power is all in you to figure out what you want to do. No, you don't go around asking permission for things, you know, and I thought, well, I just went in there and told this guy what I wanted and I followed the rules and I, and, and I found my way in. I hustled yeah. it. You're 16. You got a job working as an intern. I'm sure I'm yeah. assuming unpaid. Correct. And then, you know, you started to learn things that were going on. And then, so what happened after that? It was probably within three months or so. I'd been hanging out there really intensely in the staff there. They were like big brothers. They you didn't were all, even drive, right? Your mom had to my take My mom you. at that time, I think I got my license at the end of the summer because my birthday's at the end of August. So I think, I think there was a lot of mom help there. I know when I first went on the air myself, I drove myself there and it was in the middle of the night. And I'll tell you why. I was listening to the station as I would do at home. When I wasn't there, I was listening to it. And something remarkable happened. The six to midnight DJ named ZZ Davis um, at about 12.15 a.m. announced on the air that he was going to turn the station off. I mean, this is right out of the movies, right? <laughs> this doesn't happen. He said, listen, I've got a kid at home. Um, my replacement's not here and I need to go home. I've called everybody that would come in and maybe be a, a relief DJ or whatever. And no one's answering and I can't stay here. I have to go home. I'm going to turn the station off in a few minutes. And it'll come back on when Bruce Van Dyke comes in in the morning at 6 a.m. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I, I'm available, you know. So wow. I don't even call him on the hotline of the station. I burst into my parents' room and I wake them up and I said, I'm going to go down to KOZZ and do the all night shift because they're going to otherwise turn it off. And my, my mom said to my dad, you know, John, we'll know where he is. He'll be on the radio. We'll be able to listen. So I think it's okay. And my dad's like, sure, go ahead. So I drove to the edge of town to that station and I went into the studio and told ZZ Davis that I was here to perform. And he's like, I don't know, kid. <laughs> you know, I said, listen, I have my license. I've been here all summer. I know how to operate everything. And at the very least, I'll keep, I'll play the commercials and the records and we won't lose any revenue. Yeah. I'll play the commercials and the records. If I'm too nervous to talk or I can't figure it out, I'll just keep everything running. It's better than just going off the air. And remember, Reno's a 24-hour town. So middle of the night is like middle of the day. He's like, okay, that, that sounds good. And I remember, again, like a movie moment, seeing the taillights of his car fade off oh, into the wow. night as I was sitting in this studio. That's incredible story. <laughs> and I went on the air and... Uh, with That's the sounder of a, of a rumble of thunder, which was our top of the hour ID at one o'clock a.m. when I came on and I pronounced that I was uh, going to provide thunder on the mountain from Reno's Best Rock. You're on Northern Nevada's rocker, KOZZ Reno. And a career was launched. And you're under your name? Yep. I always use my own name because, you know, FM rock was much more about you know, authenticity and credibility than, you know, than, than the flashiness of AM or Top yeah. 40. And so, you know, obviously I sat in the, in the lobby waiting for the program director to come in that morning uh, to give him my tape from my actual show that I did that night. And he said, I heard the whole story, you know, and he said, why don't you get some sleep and come back tonight? Because the woman who uh, named Kathy, who was the DJ, had gone to the hospital and, and, and she wasn't able to come in for a few days. And he said, you can come on tonight again with some with some sleep. And from that point on, I had a daily or I had a, a weeknight midnight to 6 a.m. Saturday morning show in high school. 
And mm-hmm. by the time I was into the first half of high school, I was on all like Saturday mornings and Sunday afternoons. And I was opening up car dealerships and doing remote broadcasts from the mall and handing out prizes and doing all that stuff. What was it like when you would show up as the DJ? It was pretty quickly, it became sort of a kind of a novelty that there was this young kid that was a DJ on the number one station. It was like this kind of small town Ryan Seacrest, you yeah, know? And they were yeah. paying you. And they were paying me. Yeah. So I got paid, I think, $5 an hour. So I'd make 20 bucks for a four-hour shift, you know. My first paycheck came and I was like, what's this? He's like, it's money. (laughs) I didn't even even think about that part, you know. (laughs) Of course, I made a lot more filling in and then I would make money doing those remote broadcasts. If you went down to the stereo store and you moved a bunch of Pioneer receivers or I would help sell an Oldsmobile on a Sunday at the car dealership with those broadcasts, I got paid a lot more for that. So I was making good money in high school. So you're now, okay, so let's fast. This is incredible story. Well, and but by story. the way, so the, the question about what did people think, what, uh, the, the real question, what did the students at my high school think? Because, That's exactly what I was just yeah. going to ask okay. you. So yeah. What were your friends thinking while this was going on? So I was a varsity swimmer. And if you're on the varsity swim team uh, or any varsity letterman, when the football game happened on Friday nights, you had to work under the bleachers uh, in a rotation in the snack bar. And I was very self-conscious about how bad I was on the air. You know, I, listen, I've done maybe four or five, six shows at this point. I've been on the air for 20, 30 hours maybe of of airtime. And, you know, as advertised, an inexperienced high school kid on, on a big rock station, right? And so I didn't really want anybody at, work, at, at school to know or to maybe find out that I was on because I was on in the middle of the night still. Yeah, you were on stages. the down low. Kind yeah, of, yeah, I was trying to be. I hadn't really been on after six in the morning. You have a desire to be successful, but you didn't walk around school going, oh, hey, I have a radio right. show on at night. It wasn't my desire to be popular. And I had a couple of friends in school. I had, a, I had a high school girlfriend for my whole senior year. And I had a couple of close friends, but I, I wasn't the class president. They didn't know who I was, really. So... I let it slip accidentally on this particular Friday night because I was working in the snack bar and I let it slip that I like to get to work around 10 p.m. because I really overly obsessively prepared for my show. And I said, I got to get out of here. I've got to get to work. And I kind of tried to pull back those words after I had said that (laughs) because – because uh, one of the kids said, what do you mean, Sean? You work? Where do you, where do you work? I'm like, I work at a station. He's like, what kind of station? I said, a radio station. <laughs> He's like, what do you do at a radio station? I said, well, I'm, a, I'm a disc jockey on a radio station. And they're like, there's no possible way <laughs> that you are a disc jockey on a radio yeah. station, you know? And I said, no, I'm on KLZZ, which of course was the number one station in town, you know, <laughs> and I'm on at midnight. And so then the cat was out of the bag. And so then in another very almost famous movie-like moment, I went on the air at midnight that night. We didn't have a soundproof studio. We had just windows. And uh, I had done my top of the hour midnight, you know, Reno's Best Rock sort of sign on and got up from the console and looked out the window and all the kids from the football game were in the parking lot, you know, honking their horns <laughs> oh and doing all that stuff because the word had spread. And Total movie moment. Yeah, it was. And then by, so by lunchtime Monday at high school, there were the whispers and the finger pointing and there was no turning back. And after that, my name was on 7-Eleven super big gulp cups in every 7-Eleven near school and kids were drinking cups with my name on them. And, you know, it was a very, it was a surprising end to uh, my high school years. But they supported you. They They were happy for you. There was no animosity. No. There's such sweetness in that story, really. really. It was really, really sweet. Really nice. So yeah, yeah, that community and everybody really supported me. So now you finished high school. Yeah. All the, did you do this all the way to the end of high school? Yeah. So I started at the University of Nevada, but I found myself incredibly distracted by my radio career. And it felt like when I got out of school every day, every ounce of energy I put into my work, um, I got this immediate return from it. And it felt like I couldn't understand beyond the academic value of my college education. At this moment, it felt like there was this accelerating thing happening with my radio and that college would kind of always be there, but I was kind of on a special track and I could feel it. So there's a, what I felt like I needed to get into the majors. I needed to get out of the small town. I needed to get to the major markets and who's going to take me seriously. If I have a handwritten, you know, cassette label, you know, from a tiny Reno radio station when I need to get to LA or New York. And so there was a trade magazine that had all the classified ads in the back and having come from the Pacific Northwest originally, there was a radio station there, one of the most prestigious stations in America called KISW. Big rock station, one of the most prestigious. 
And at that station, they had an opening and I knew the station well because I'd come from Port Angeles. We used to listen to that station and a good friend of mine had sent me tapes of that station over the years after I moved. So I was up to speed on it more than I probably, other people probably would have been. And so it said in the ad, like it always said in these ads, job opening, KISW, send tape and resume, no calls in all bold. And so I pick up the phone and I call KISW and I call and I ask for the program director, Bo Phillips, and he took the call. And I said to him, um, I'm interested in the job that you have available. I'm sorry for calling, but if you, you know, I, I'm really interested and I thought I better, you know, if I'm going to send you a tape, I, I should, you should know who I am and maybe you'll remember the call. He said, yeah, no problem. Um, he said, yeah, I'd love to listen to your tape. And I said, I'm from the Pacific Northwest and honestly, I'm going to be in Seattle next week. I am not going to intrude, but I'd love to just stop by, shake your hand and hand you my tape. He said, yeah, <laughs> sure. When are you going to be in town? He's like, Monday. I'm like, Monday through Wednesday, maybe Thursday. He said, yeah, we'll come by Tuesday. I said, okay. Hang up the phone. I said, mom, I need help getting a plane ticket because I'm going to Seattle on business next week. And, uh, I flew up to Seattle and I went and met him, shook his hand and I waited around all week. And he called me on Thursday at my aunt's house where I had to sit by the phone because I made the mistake of saying, call me instead of me saying I would call him. So I had to wait by the phone, you know, there's no right. other way. And, and he no said, I, he said he liked me. And if, if I wanted the job, they would be thrilled to have me at KISW. Uh, and so I went back to, this was a part-time job, but this was a much bigger job at a huge station. I was still going to only, I was going to go from being a big fish in a small pond to being, you know, the small fish in the big pond and work a couple days a week, but be kind of the main fill-in guy. But I was going to have a couple of my own shows, but I was going to make enough money to s support myself. So that was time to sit my parents down in the living room and say, I'd like to quit college and move to Seattle to be a rock DJ. Mm -hmm. And my parents said, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, a career window opening and school's always there, but you have to kind of follow this momentum and clearly you've got something going on. So they were very supportive of it. So wow. that drive to Seattle with my dad was like the, the drive a dad takes with his kid to college because I was that age. And by the end of 1982, yeah, I was working at KISW and I was working with some of the best in the business. And there are many more stories that go out from that. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. Okay. So now we're in Seattle. Yeah. We have this job. You're getting paid, I'm guessing, more than 1200 a month now. Yeah, I'm probably making about the same, but I'm working less. And then if I did the fill-in shows and things, I probably made a little bit more. So you, you had know? enough to support yeah. yourself. You yeah, got yourself I made a more per apartment. hour, you mm -hmm. know, but yeah. Did you get a yeah. little apartment and got a little apartment uh, overlooking the Puget Sound and had my first my first place and if I look back on it now I don't know how I had the the wherewithal to have an apartment and pay my rent and do all that. I don't know I don't know what I was thinking I look back on it you know So one thing that sort of marked your trajectory in the very beginning was this analytical aspect this ability to look into the business and see to, just to observe things and have have sort of singular insights did that continue when you moved to Seattle because what I, I see in what I've read about you is this ability to create brands inside of radio and teams inside of radio. How did that happen? What was that about? Seattle was kind of the catalyst for that because that ability to kind of look through radio, this is sort of an unfair advantage of the particular career I chose was that there were radio stations in every town. And I quickly was able to say, well, if you're making $5 in Reno for a four hour show, there's this guy in, I remember telling my dad, there's this guy in LA, Rick Dees at the time, mm -hmm. who makes a million dollars a year doing the same show I'm doing for same four hours. He's just doing it, you know, a thousand miles south of here, you know. To a bigger uh, audience. Yeah, to a bigger audience. So I said, you know, any place I go bigger than here is going to have stations, which means there will always be a job for me in this profession. And uh, the bigger and better uh, the market, uh, the better the station, the more money it makes, the more they can pay me. And I figured that out at an early age. And so I was living that in Seattle at that station. I'm overwhelmed by how savvy you were. That's the part I can't explain. <laughs> I'd like to have a snappy answer for that, but I can't really explain it. Wow. You know? So it was there under the tutelage of Bo Phillips that I really fell in love with the idea of programming. And I thought, well, instead of just doing this one show, as I had looked through these stations across the country and analyzed them already for a number of years, I'd like to be the one who figures out what songs we play and what promotions we do and what our positioning statement is and what the image and brand of the station is. That's much more interesting to me than being the DJ, I left KISW for a job as an assistant program director of a radio station in San Antonio, Texas. So a market of a million people, 
But instead of being the 13th largest market, it was like market 34, but still a top 50 U.S. city and a radio station that was owned by the company that had hired me in Reno originally. And my old boss got his big break to go down there and be the the program director of a station that needed to flip its format. He asked me to come down and be his right hand. I was 20, 21, probably about 21, I think. So I drove a U-Haul truck all the way to San Antonio, Texas from Seattle and went to work um, after being in this gleaming first class radio station to a dilapidated broadcast center that was in a converted motel under a freeway overpass <laughs> in San Antonio, Texas. Hot as hell. Covered in roaches with a swimming pool that had been covered in with dirt. And uh, the one thing I always said, though, was it was the first time that I worked where, you know, it's the, the coveted thing in corporate America is to have an office with a bathroom. Every office had a bathroom because they were, they were all old <laughs> hotel motel rooms. rooms. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to rename that radio station. Um, this was the first time I really had my hand on really making my own station and putting my mark on. And that became a love that I've carried through to my companies today. And that was that this station had been called KXZL Kexel 104. And I'm like, what the hell is a Kexel? You know, I mean, who's going to rally behind that? And the station across town was called KISS, the original K-I-S-S-F-M, which is the most dominant and hardest rock station in America, even today. So we, here we are with this Kexel thing. And I said, you know, we brainstormed and we wanted to call it, you know, the FBI, KFBI. Or so we had a bunch of ideas. And then we settled on KZEP, K-Z-E-P. I said, if we're going to launch a credible rock station, if we name it after Led Zeppelin, we can't go wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> KZEP. K-Z-E-P. Live from the great state of Texas, it's 104.5. KZEP. K-Z-E-P. So it was KZEP until about two years ago. It was KZEP for a good 25 years wow. and did really well down there. Programming is marketing and marketing is programming. And you were at the, a very young age doing that on a very high level. Do you think it really helped you to see the opportunity with cable television early? Yeah. Fast forward to the MTV years. Yeah. yeah. What I learned early on was that if you worked in radio, it was a great, great gridiron, great boot camp for any type of, of media work because no matter how big the radio station, even when I got to Los Angeles and K-Rock, which was the largest music station really in the country, we didn't have resources to buy bumper stickers to hand out in the van, you know, to cover the entire Southern California, LA and Orange County. We had to be really opportunistic and figure out how to, you know, do partnerships and, you know, and really how to operate very entrepreneurially and very creatively. But first and foremost, in, in a market like Los Angeles or in San Antonio with 30 to 100 radio stations, there are a couple of good ones and a lot of bad ones. And you could quickly see that the people rally behind and make a part of their lives something that feels tangible, that feels like a real brand and brands matter. And so my life has always been about building brands. They haven't always been really successful. They've always been really cool. Mm -hmm. So, you mm -hmm. know, starting in, in high school, my life has been about making cool things or making things cool. You know, yeah. that's been what it's been about. And that will, you know, money falls from a brand, brand content underpinning it. And then the audience and the money will come. I hear from your story that you had a very clear understanding that these were stops along the way. Yes. You know, a lot of times I think people sort of settle into something and it's comfortable and they're happy and they stay there. For you, these were stops along the way. I never saw myself stopping. I, because I had this momentum, I was looking at that grid. I was in San Antonio. I was not in LA or New York. I knew I could keep going. And by this time, referencing back to the beginning where I went into that radio station with my tape and I kind of figured out how to hustle the system and get a job. From that point, my feeling was, well, there's nothing stopping me from just keeping this play going and just keeping asking, you know, keep on asking for what I want and keep on demanding it and keep on, you know, pushing forward. But you're a bifurcated person in that you had a very clear understanding of what it was like to be a DJ, but you also have a strong business sense. And so, and it's, and it over your career, the business side has won out. Yeah. If I go back on it, my dilemma internally within myself at my age now is, did I make the right choices? Should I have stayed on the entertainment side as the talent possibly and not been in management? And there have been times over the years when I've had, I had an opportunity to make that choice. I almost went back into doing a morning show while I was the president of CBS and Fanny Radio. I thought about becoming one of the hosts of one of our stations. I almost went to be a comedy writer with Conan O'Brien when I was at MTV. Humor and being a morning DJ and being an entertainer and putting a show together is is part of the fabric of me. But I put it all aside and I was really MTV when MTV 
came calling after the success at K-Rock in Los Angeles. That's what hijacked my career. And that's when I had to quickly figure out that if I wanted to be in charge, I had to learn to be a great manager, a really good executive. And in media, creative people who can pass as good executives can be put in charge, be yeah. made the CEO. It's not often a great business guy is the CEO of a media company. So you got to, if you're a creative guy and you have the answers and you have the big ideas, which I always had, then if you could um, execute them or get people to rally behind you, then you could be in charge. Your engagement and curiosity seems to me to be the thing that throttled you forward. I really learned something about myself and I don't know, I mean, I felt badly about it, but in San Antonio, in the parking lot of that radio station that was in the motel, the guy who gave me that job that morning in Reno with my cassette after the amateur hour, the Sarge was my boss there too. He's the one who hired me to come down there for his big break to go to the big time. And I came back from a meeting at Kiss across the street and informed him that I'd taken a job there oh. as the right hand at the number one station after just five months. And it was devastating. Yeah. It was bad. And I devastating for both of you. Yeah. Because he had really believed in me. He was a terrific supporter of me. Believed in me twice, brought me back, took, took me to San Antonio. And I knew that our station would never be what KISS was and that I would never get out of San Antonio if I stayed there. And KISS was a respected, outsized station in a smaller market. And the program director of that station was a big programmer who was kind of stopped off in San Antonio, but had been in Chicago and Miami. And he and I had a great chemistry and he sought me out and asked me if I would come over after I got off work and talk to him about a job. And we liked each other immediately. So I had to say goodbye to the guy that had given me my break. And he was very upset and left the market and back to Reno not long after that. I, not long after that, went to Denver uh, to the top 25 market with this guy, Trip Reeb, who was a fantastic supporter of mine as his right hand there. He shortly left thereafter, and I became the youngest program director in America of, of a radio station in Denver and wow. took that station um, all the way to number one in a very short period of time in a very heated multi-station rock battle in Colorado. So hitching my wagon to Trip Reeb and going from making that choice saying it's just business. Yeah. So what we're doing this for and going up to uh, Denver, getting that job and being made the program director against corporates to sit, by the way, the corporation that owned the station in Denver, very big station uh, was not into me being the program director, even in the interim. They're like, this guy's 23. He's never run a station before. And my boss there had seen me operating as the assistant program director for about six months mm -hmm. and uh, said, uh, that you're, he said, you're, you're my guy. What advice would you give your 22, 23-year-old self about all of that? I'm conflicted about that decision because I'm the kind of person in my soul that would have continued to just be incredibly supportive and thankful for the opportunity that Daniel Cook gave me at that station. At the same time, I thought, I don't know what he would have done. I don't know what the right decision is, but this is clearly a huge opportunity for me. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, there are those times when it's not about family, but it's really about work. And this is my work life. And I'm out here on this grid to keep advancing. I'm not interested in staying still. Mm -hmm. And so if that's who I am, then I have to, to make these moves. Right. right. It's yeah. hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And it was really painful. And it, it wasn't like it was easy for me to come in there and tell him I was doing that. Do you know him now? As with, I think, almost everybody in my life, you know, we've remained close. You know, we're Facebook friends. We, ch we chat frequently. Mm -hmm. He's now retired. Our paths crossed many more times. I helped him launch a radio station up in northern Nevada years later as a little bit of a thank you. So it's all patched up. Oh, I can only imagine my heart breaks for that phone, that conversation. Oh, it was really hard. I had to do the same thing. I left a guy that really, you know, put me on the map. Mm -hmm. And it just, the time came and I had to go and see him. When it was time for me to leave, he went on vacation to Italy for a week so he didn't have to take my resignation. And uh, it was <laughs> yeah. heartbreaking. It's hard. That's really what they mean when they say don't burn bridges, though. It's like sometimes you have to do the hard thing. Right. But you have to come back and you have to stand in the truth of your decision, but also seek to remain connected. It does amaze me how many people burn bridges and don't really think it through. Because here's an example now, which I'm going to continue to play this one forward for you, is Trip Reeb hires me in 
San Antonio, Texas, after calling me on the request line and asking me if I was the guy that did all the promos on the station at KZEP. And I'm like, yes. He's like, I'm Trip Reeb, the program director of, of KISS. Yeah, I have a job opening. And I went and met with him. And then he hired me and, and we drove up to Denver together and went to work there. He left. I got his job. And then when I took KZY to number one in Denver, you know, and it was so powerful, the station so quickly. And I was so impossibly young that it became fodder for the billboard and the radio and records and all the trade magazines. And they had, you know, R&R had coined me boy wonder, you know, and that's how they would refer to me, you know? So I kind of had this name out there and I'm in a major market now with great success. And I'm starting to get offered really big jobs, Detroit, Chicago, um, maybe New York. There's some interest in Los Angeles for sure. Wow. And I'm interested in going to Los Angeles. I've now been the program director of that station somewhere on the order of a year and a half, probably. And I've had a real real success there. Repositioned the station that was always the worst station in town, but it had been on the air since the mid sixties. So I repositioned it as Colorado's first rock and roll FM and the station that first brought the Beatles to FM radio. The sixties, a time when gas was cheap, sex was dirty, the living was wild and 106.7 KAZY first brought rock and roll to FM radio. The station that first played Led Zeppelin in stereo, you know, <laughs> all these things we did, you know, you'd get mm. off an airplane at, at, at the airport and you'd see a billboard, welcome to Denver, home of America's first FM rock station, you know, all these things. We just positioned this as this glorious thing that it never was, but the, the audience bought it and it was a really, we, it was a very credible, powerful station. So I was starting to talk to two LA stations about being the program director. And then I got a call from Trip Reeb, who'd been my boss in San Antonio and in Denver and was now in San Diego. And he said, I just had a meeting with Mel Carmazin, who runs Infinity Broadcasting, and he made me the general manager of K-Rock in LA. I said, that's incredible. I said, I just got out of a meeting with the GM of KLOS, and I think I'm probably going to go there as the program director. I said, the bad news is I know all your tricks. You, I learned them from you. <laughs> So what are we going to do about this? You know? And I said, do you need a program director at K-Rock? And he said, yeah, you know, Rick Carroll, who was the founder of the rock of the eighties format died of AIDS a little over a year ago. The station's been adrift without a general manager or a program director. And I said, yeah, I can tell the station sounds terrible. You know, I said, that's, I like, I like to go where you can win visibly. You don't want to, KLOS was on top. Why would I want to go there? And, you know, how am I going to make a name for myself at a station that's already doing well, you know? And so I said, um, if you need a program director, give me a call. And he said, well, we're talking right now. He said, when can you talk about it? I said, I'll go to the airport right now and I'll come down <laughs> there right now and we can meet tonight. And I did. I went right to the airport. He picked me up at, at LAX that night. I stayed in his apartment in the Valley. And by noon the next day, Mel and Tripp had hired me to be the program director of K-Rock. So wow. yeah, don't That's burn bridges. Amazing. Don't yeah. burn bridges. Look yeah, at all the serendipity bridges. that yeah. has touched you in your life. Yeah. So you you stopped being a non-ear personality and we're now doing the development of the business for each of these places that you were working. I had the perfect job at K-Rock here in L.A. because I got to be on the air whenever I wanted. It was the same in Denver as well. Each of the stations I worked at, when I got into management, I also was known by the audience. I kept that persona. I, I thought the radio stations really personified me and my personality. And that was even to a certain degree, MTV had a certain amount of that at the time that I was the head of programming. And so um, at K-Rock, I felt like if you knew the people who worked at the station, it made a stronger bond with the listener. If you could picture what the general manager looked like and what he did, and you got to know the receptionist and people like that behind the scenes. And so me being the, the boss, I was known by the morning show and the rest of the staff is they've still called me Boy Wonder at that point. I think they called me Boy or Boy Wonder. And I decide that because Trip Reeb was always this way from the majors, that I needed to wear a suit and tie to work. Like, that's the most ridiculous thing. Were you still thing. in your 20s? Yeah, I was 24. I was, you know, I was the program director of K-Rock and I'm wearing a tie, you know, because I think I'm management, you know. The thought was that I was going to make it one of those stations that played, you know, Leonard Skinner and Led Zeppelin like I had done. And there weren't that many stations that played Depeche Mode and The Cure and those kinds of records. And so that wasn't the case. And I wanted to try to see if I could retain K-Rock's, you know, original brand. Because the thing that made me excited was K-Rock was so powerful um, and such a rite of passage in Southern California for young people that even when it was down on its knees and being beaten by all other stations in, in a focus group, one guy said to me, K-Rock really sucks. 
I wish it was good again so I could listen. And most yeah. people, when when they turn on a brand, they just go find something else. They're still rooting for you But this guy was internalizing. He, was, he wanted it to be yeah. good again because he wanted to be able to listen to it. And that was inspiration to turn it around. I was on the Kevin and Bean show. I hired Kevin and Bean, put them together. And because I'd been a morning DJ and I've, fancied myself a humorist. I was helping to structure and and put them, to, they'd never done a show together before. So we had this huge experiment of taking two guys who'd never worked in radio uh, together um, on a show and building their show meant that I had to be in there. It was our biggest asset, our biggest time slot, biggest gamble. And so I was known to the audience there. And I hosted one of the most popular features during the time called Mr. TV, where I was this cartoon character of TV trivia that became very popular. Okay. <laughs> I would open a supermarket with a TV on my head and those kinds of things by night. I won't have it. Turn it off. I don't want it. <laughs> Mr. TV, we were kind of hoping... Um, He's temperamental now. Yeah, really. It's not that you're on probation, but we are watching every move, Mr. TV. I'll do what I want, okay? Well, you may do what you want on another show, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Hello, Mr. There you go. Shut up! <laughs> okay, good. That's the way to treat him. Hey, Tom. Hey, how you doing? Say hi to Mr. TV. Hey, Senior TV. Shut up. <laughs> hey, listen, I got a quick question. Yeah, how come you never see Andy and Mr. TV in the same room at the same time? See, that's the question that many Bog people ask that. Boggles the mind. And, and, and only nature can unlock those secrets. <laughs> well, the, the mysteries of Mr. TV. You started out being analytical as a kid and that that sort of ability for analysis uh, permitted you to sort of jump in and, and figure out how to how to get your break very, very young. How much how much were you starting to pay attention to technology and uh, sort of the increasingly digital landscape of media? And, and how did that sort of fit? At that time, media was very analog still, very, very linear, very live, very analog. There wasn't much beyond stereo to really think about. Speaking about being analytical, the decision to go to Los Angeles beyond the fact that I was offered this great job was I felt like my career was already accelerating. And I thought, kind of in my early 20s, I'm not going to be doing this forever. I'm going to run out of opportunities. My plan of going up, up this grid is going to, you know, it's going to run out. And at some point, I'm going to have to pivot and do something something else. And if I go to Los Angeles and I go to K-Rock versus the other stations, that's the industry station. That's the one all the stars listen to. That's the one that some director, producer, or executive is going to be driving on to the Warner Brothers lot, listening to K-Rock. And here's some crazy thing that I'm doing. And they're going to want to find out who came up with that idea. And then I'm going to get a call and then I'm going to be on my way to something else. And sure enough, that's what happened when in the summer of 92, after the 10th anniversary of MTV, the mantra from Tom Freston was the novelty of music videos has worn off. No longer do people watch MTV and know every single video and care about every single frame of every video. We need to find somebody, maybe at the intersection of art and science, that's a programmer, maybe someone from radio that can figure out where we go next. So they got a short list of programmers from radio from a guy named Jeff Pollock, who I'd known since high school <laughs> because I'd been in radio since high school. high school. And so I'd met Jeff in San Antonio, but Jeff had put together a list of programmers. He'd been my consultant in Denver. And of course, that list only had one person under 30 in it <laughs> and only one person at a really cool station in Los Angeles that was the one that Tom Freston and Judy McGrath said, that's that cool station in LA we listened to when we go out there. Mm -hmm. We got to meet this guy. And so I was on my way to New York, met with uh, MTV and I was hired on the spot, and that was my move from uh, radio to television. Was it a smooth move? Was it was it something that came as naturally as everything else, or was there a learning curve? There was a learning curve in that I um, the similarity in businesses. It was music television. It was like radio with pictures. It was mostly music videos at that time, VJs instead of DJs promos that were, you know, visual, but they were basically like station IDs and commercials. And then there were some other shows and specials and things. Well, we had all that at K-Rock, but it was a huge organization with hundreds of employees on multiple floors. And I was way unprepared for, uh, for the matrixed society of, of corporate, corporate it was, America. It was corporate because yeah. radio's not, wasn't corporate. I may be now, but it wasn't. I was a very high profile radio programmer picking the records uh, at the most influential music station in, you know, in the country a week earlier. And now I'm at MTV as the, as a VP. There were 
many VPs there, I found out when I got there. And my start there was radio guy who doesn't really know anything about MTV and TV is going to be heard from very little, hopefully, you know? (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, there was a learning curve and I couldn't stand it because K-Rock was the biggest radio station in the country, but it was a couple of DJs and some salespeople and a promotion director and a van, you know, and you go to MTV and it's this massive machine. And I'd be in the summer of 92 planning session on the 24th floor conference room. And I was like Tom Hanks in that movie, Big, if you saw it, when he gets into the toy company and he keeps raising his hand in the meeting, like, who's going to play with a building, you know, or whatever, you know? There's a million robots that turn into something. And this is a building that turned into a robot. What's fun about playing with a building? That's not any fun. This is a skyscraper. Well, couldn't it be like a, a, a robot that turns into into something like a like a bug or something? A bug. Yeah. Like a big prehistoric insect with maybe like giant claws that could pick up a car and, and crush it like that. A prehistoric transformer. And I kept raising my hand because they were saying, this is a brainstorm for summer. And summer was like six weeks away. And I remember saying, uh, raising my hand and I'd say, well, can we close up the studio and go to the beach for the summer and do all of our segments from there? They're like, no, we got to use the studio. Can we go up on the roof of the studio? Where is it? I haven't even seen it yet. You know, uh, nope, we got to do everything in the studio. And so we have this, you know, and so the end of that, that, of that first sort of brainstorming meeting was I raised my hand one last time and they, they point to me and I said, can we cancel this meeting and set up a meeting for next week to do summer of 93 planning? And in that time, we have a whole year to decide how to be outside in the sun with blue sky, bathing suits and all those things. We'll have a whole year to work on it. Yeah. And let's just write off this summer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, well, and you they, they were that, like rolling their eyes at it's me. It's being in corporate America all of a sudden yeah. instead yeah. of being yeah. on the ground. Brutal. And yeah. now all of a sudden you're looking at suits, which are the, are the bane of our existence. First, First of all, I would say that everybody, all my colleagues there, I had great respect for right away because my feeling was if I'm going to go to New York, to MTV, to Viacom, I knew enough to think this is the pinnacle. These people are going to be really smart, really on their game, really understand audience, branding, everything else. And all that was true. It's just that it wasn't really put together properly. And there was a, they lost the focus on, on the balance of what kind of music to play and all that. And it was the timing of the, if you think about it, it's 1992. And I just come from K-Rock where we were starting to light the fire of this grunge music scene. And we had seen, we'd made K-Rock into a rock station. It had been kind of a Euro dance station. So all of a sudden we had the Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Allison Chains, all these groups were rising up. And then on the hip hop side, you had um, The Chronic from Dr. Dre and these other records, the East Coast, West Coast hip hop thing starting to brew. So I walk in there and this is where, you know, timing and luck comes in. They're still playing a lot of hair bands from the 80s. And think about it for a second. The people working there in the music department, they forged relationships just like you might have in your business with the manager of, you know, Rat or Poison or Def Leppard. And when they brought their new video in, it wasn't relevant to the audience anymore, but they had these deep relationships. I didn't have those. I came in like a bull in a china shop and I'm like, we're not playing any relevant music here. And so under one arm, we have The Chronic from Dr. Dre. Under the other, Nevermind from Nirvana. And that was the beginning of Alternative Nation with Kennedy at midnight on MTV, which was the starting point for all of that alternative music that then fed into the mainstream playlist of MTV. And then you had The Chronic from Dr. Dre, which I plugged Bill Bellamy, who was a hip-hop comedian, into. We built MTV Jams with the idea that jams are not rap or hip-hop, their jams, which is sponsor friendly. And then we were able to take R&B and hip hop and rap and all that, play that multiple hours a day, build up all that stuff, Tupac, Dre, you know, Diddy, all that, and force that into the mainstream of MTV. And then the new MTV in the 90s was incredibly powerful and a credible force in music, melding really hip hop and alternative, and then the biggest of pop music. And that became our format. Mm-hmm. So that was, I couldn't make the chronic or never mind, but I could walk in with them and make a pretty strong case that that was much more compelling content. How exciting, though. What yeah. an amazing time to have been yeah. involved in that. You were right at the edge of what became an explosive change in the music industry. Yeah. And after 10 years and MTV, again, sort of the mantra being the novelty of video had worn off, we had to look for new ways to get people interested in music again on television because there was ratings erosion there. And that's what led to the to the long form programming blocks. So from there, after about 12 weeks, I became 
the head of music programming. So I was in charge of ultimately being the judge that picked the music videos with a team and was responsible for the VJs and all of those segments and things. And then from there, I was promoted to be really the head of all programming at MTV and then also at VH1. And then I led the team that we launched and, you know, created and launched MTV2 as well. Now let's talk about where you are now. After my MTV years, I took a tour through the record business and ran a number of universal music group companies um, at the turn of the century, built the first uh, music subscription service with Jimmy Iovine, who went on to work at, at Apple and, and do beats and all of those things. But we had a company called farmclub.com, which you can imagine how much I felt that I had fallen from the peak of New York and MTV. And 18 months later, after a stop at Warner Brothers Records, where I was general manager right after MTV, I was now the founder of farmclub.com <laughs> with Jimmy and Doug Morris. But it was the, one of the first convergent media companies that had a television show and a record company and a website all together. Imagine like American Idol and at the time, mp3.com and MySpace kind of all mashed together is what Farm Club was. And it was, it paved the way for uh, Press Play, which was a joint venture of Sony and Universal that I ran as founder and CEO, which was one of the two first music subscription services before Spotify and, and Apple, you know, and iTunes and all of those things. And from there, I launched two more cable networks. One I still am involved with, with Sean uh, Diddy Combs, or I call Puffy or Puff. <laughs> Employees refer to as Mr. C or the chairman, but uh, he's always going to be puffed to me from our MTV years. So we have a cable network together called Revolt TV. And so um, I've done a great number of things, but I've decided to shed what is predominantly video skin of the last decade or so um, and get back to my roots in audio. And so I've put together a stealth team that is that comes from Apple, that comes from Sirius XM, comes from Deloitte Consulting, you know, really a strong team of, of board investors and executives to uh, fix what we think is broken in listening. Uh, there's so much, there's never been more, there have never been, just like your podcast here, there have never been more opportunities for people to listen to things on demand. But there are a lot of problems with listening in discovery that have to do with the time people have. You know, the listening format doesn't fit with the amount of time we have to listen. And so I've been thinking about listening, going back to that clock radio when I was a kid in Port Angeles, Washington, so longer than just about anybody. And in 2004, I sat down at the request of Steve Jobs Jobs for a brainstorm. He asked me to come up and, and wow. brainstorm with him for an afternoon in Cupertino. And I was thrilled. And uh, I went up for what was ultimately the typical beating from him of, you know, him <laughs> telling me everything I had done sucked, which wasn't the word he used. But he said everything except MTV I'd done was pure, you know, you know, S, you know what? So anyway, but he'd invited me up and he asked me what my big idea was. And I was prepared. And my big idea really was something in listening. And I said to him, if you go on Google right now, and you type in iPod shows. And this was the first generation of iPod pre-iPhone right after Memorial Day 2004. I said, if you go on Google right now and type in iPod show, there's one search result that comes back on the entire internet. It's from a deadhead, a guy who's a Grateful Dead fan who took a bootleg and he calls it an iPod show. He said, imagine all the things we can do with an iPod and with listening. Finally, listening is on demand. We've been able to watch video on demand going back to Blockbuster, to a video store. We've had that forever. Said, so now for the first time, you can listen to things on demand. You could customize your commute. You could decide if you want NBC News or ABC News. You want Kevin and Bean or you want a horoscopes or sports or no sports. You can blend it in with your own music playlist. Think of all the things we could do. We could map the Smithsonian. You don't have to get those headphones that you have to stand in line to rent anymore. We could click through it. We could do all these great things with sound on demand. And uh, he looked at me and he paused for a few seconds and he said, that is a small idea. What else have you got? <laughs> really? Yeah. So, so hopefully it makes it in, in, into one of my business decks that uh, my idea is a small idea, but, but. Uh, well, how prescient you were. So, really? I mean, yeah, that is it's amazing. So, it's so interesting yeah. too, because I had a tour of duty with Steve Jobs when I was very young. And I just feel like Jobs did that when he heard great ideas sometimes. Yeah. There's, listen, what was funny was he was very, I mean, right on point, right on brand, pretty abusive of me. You know, he had gotten my name, I think, from Terry Semmel. Mm -hmm. I had been talking to Terry about going up to Yahoo to run the media business up there. And I had worked for Terry um, indirectly at Warner Brothers mm -hmm. when I was at the record company. And so I think that's where he got my name. He said my name had been coming up a lot and he wanted to get to know me, maybe to talk about iTunes, iLife, iPhotos, all that stuff. They were trying to figure out what their play was. And I was flattered to be invited. Um, and it was 
was an amazing meeting again for another, it's a podcast all into itself, my day with him. <laughs> but I was able to diffuse his rage with uh, humor and it totally worked because the HR representative before I went in said, you're going in to meet Steve Jobs. He said, you don't need a job at Apple, right? And I said, no. I said, I'm just, he just invited me up to get to know him. He said, good, because when you go in to see Steve Jobs, it's going to go either really, really well, really, really fast or really badly, really fast. He said, if it goes really badly, you can't fight it. You need to be prepared to just get up and walk out. It's, it's just, you're not coming back anyway. So just cut your losses. I'm like, okay. You know, I'm thinking to myself. That's great risk management. Yeah, I've kind of worked for, you know, Mel Carmazin, Sumner Redstone, Barry <laughs> Diller. I mean, I, you, you, I can rattle off a lot of people. I've, I, now I'm actually kind of nervous, you know. Uh, Alan Grubin, so, I'm guessing. Right, yeah, I go in there. So I walk I, I walk in and, and when we have the meeting. And, and so after he had told me and berated me over press play and how bad it was as a music service and all that, he said, why are you here? And I said, well, you invited me up to get to know each other. And so far it's going great. <laughs> and he, he burst out laughing at that point and he said, ah, you're all right. Kind of like something well, like that, you know, and that was the way we diffused it. And uh, we had a good chat. What an interesting time you had. And about six months later, podcasting really was, you know, kind of came to the surface. It's been amazing talking to yeah. you. I feel so sad that our time is up because there's so many more things I want to talk about. What a joy. Thanks for having me. Thank you, you I adore you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like light oh, shining. Oh, we're making new friends today. Yeah, that's good. See, look, yay. I'm reaching out. I'm, I'm You're see? networking. Yeah. See, I'm networking. That's good. All right. <laughs> to hear Andy's recently launched venture speaker, just download it from the iOS app store for iPhone and iPad by searching and typing in SPKR. It takes his vast experience of connecting content creators with audiences and now focuses it on curating podcasts and all things listenable. Although we normally interview individuals, next time we're going to welcome sisters Lily Gross and Susan Cohen and interview them both together. They're going to reveal an extraordinary family life story of a marital secret that was withheld from them and everyone else in their family for 80 years. Both of them are successful in creative fields. Lily pursued a career in fashion, developing her own clothing line, and worked with the prestigious retailer Barney's as a stylist in New York. Susan's background is in fine arts and she is the principal designer of Susan Cohen Designs. She specializes in large residential properties and was featured in the TLC BBC reality show, Material World. Her work has been shown in many designer publications. Their parents' life story is so powerful that Lily produced a documentary on the subject and we're gonna hear all about it. So be prepared for a very unique story as we rewind to the beginning with Lily Gross and Susan Cohen on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram.